That is such a beautiful opening to each sermon of this series as we talk about making all things new and having the understanding that uh, while we were created perfectly in God's image, sin has definitely had a major interruption in our lives and has transfigured us into something that we were never meant to be, and that is the people who we are today, filled with sin and filled with a, a, a darkness in our lives, an evilness in our lives, a rebellion that goes against God. And one day, one day, we're going to depart from this body and our soul's going to continue, and we're going to be forever with Jesus Christ, those who call him Savior and Lord. If you missed the opening of this sermon series last week, you missed a powerful sermon by uh, my grandfather, Ben. This has been one of the most uh, asked-for sermons that we've had for in many, many years, and if you want a, D or a CD copy of that, there's some that are free to you at the welcome desk, but you can also go online or you can download it to iTunes or get it off a podcast through uh, Bethany Christian Church podcast as well. We hope you listen to that. He talks about death and what the Christian's going to experience when they die, and he talks about heaven. And we're going to continue on to that. Now, I wasn't here the very first part of the week that we were supposed to introduce this. Uh, the sermon that I had written originally a couple, three weeks ago or so, uh, you're going to get it today. Because I put so much labor into that, but I never got to deliver that baby. And today I want to deliver it to you. And so we're kind of going in reverse nature. While we were originally going to talk about how to get to heaven, which we're talking about today, we kind of jumped forward and we talked about death and we talked about heaven. And then next week we're going to talk about what is heaven going to be like? I mean, we're just going to sit around and play the harp all day because if they were going to do that, I don't want to do that. So what's it going to look like? Who's going to be there? Are dogs and cats? Cats aren't going to be there, but are dogs going to be there? <laughs> so turn with me to John chapter 14. John chapter 14, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 6, and I just want to just kind of share with you how we get, how we get to heaven, and whom do we trust. John 14, uh, verse 1, don't let your hearts be troubled, Jesus said, you believed in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms, if that were not so, would I have told you? that I'm going there to a prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. Verse 4. You know the way to the place where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Which of the commandments that God has put into place is the most difficult for you to follow? Is it, you know, do not lie because you're tempted, especially around tax time, to kind of fudge the numbers? Or maybe when you're in a tight spot to not tell the truth? Is it do not covet? Maybe when you see a friend get a raise around this time or you find someone in your class that you graduate with has these enormous achievements in life, it's hard not to be jealous and so you start to covet. Maybe you go back to the New Testament and you look around and you say, well, Jesus said don't lust and even if you look at someone lustfully or think lustfully about them, that's the same as adultery and you say, man, that's a tough one to keep in this sensual society. But did you recognize the commandment that's in John 14? The commandment is this. Don't let your heart be troubled. That's a pretty difficult commandment to keep in this world, isn't it? 
There's so many things troubling about this world. There's war, there is terrorism, there are plots, there is civil unrest in our nation, there are people that have serious financial problems and burdens, there are families that are struggling, there is drug addiction, and our children and our grandchildren have to walk through this, and you're nervous for them. Will they be able, will they be able to walk the path that God has set for them? And maybe you're troubled by all the potential problems that this life is throwing at you. Now listen to the words of Jesus again, the commandment, don't let your heart be troubled. I think all of the peace hinges on being confident that Jesus rose from the grave. All of our peace is dependent upon Jesus rising again from the dead and saying that we have a home in heaven. But how do we get to that home in heaven? Well, Jesus talks to the disciples that are there, and he is talking to them just days before that he's going to the cross and he's going to die. And so he's saying, as a dead man walking, don't be troubled. Don't be troubled and you're about ready to die a horrific crucifixion, Jesus. Don't be troubled and we know we're going to lose you, Jesus, the one we've been following after for years and who we've depended on for the last three years of our life. You're trying to tell me, don't be troubled. My life's going to get out of hand here in just a little bit. I'm going to have an uncertain future. And you're telling me, don't be troubled. And he says, no, don't be troubled. And he gives the prescription. He gives the answer on how we release our troubles and our fears, and here's what he says. Don't be troubled, and here it is, rather trust in God and trust in me. Think of it like this. Replace your troubles with trust. Maybe you're in trouble financially. Let me just imagine a scenario where you're in the red on your books and your family is wondering what you're going to do next, and someone comes to you and says, trust me with your money. And they say, I can get you out of your debt within a year, and then I can double your income within that year's time too. Now, you'd be pretty excited to see what that guy has to say, but you're also going to want to see his credentials. You're going to look at his background. You're going to want to make sure that this is a trustworthy person that's offering you something so great and marvelous in life. And here's Jesus. Jesus says, you have troubles. I know you have troubles. This world has troubles, but trust me. Trust God and trust me. And I think some of us in this room are saying, why in the world, Jesus, should we trust you? And I know that's Jesus' conclusion as he teaches. He's perceptive, and he knows his disciples are wondering, how can we trust you? And so Jesus says this about himself, just trust me. But through the scriptures, he shows us time and time again why we should trust him. Jesus is trustworthy, number one, because he is divine in his identity. If you were to go to John chapter 14 and just look down at verse 9 where we were, he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You see, Jesus was no ordinary man. Isn't that what Christmas tells us? That he was God with us. He is Emmanuel, that God had made his presence here on earth. And so Jesus says, I'm not like you. You can trust me. I am divine. I am God in the flesh. Here's another reason why Jesus is trustworthy. He has perfect integrity. No one you've ever met has had perfect integrity. Jesus did. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15 says that he was tempted in every single way except he was without sin. He was tempted just like you and I are tempted, yet he was without sin. That is perfect integrity. Let me just think of it. As a little boy, Jesus never sassed his mother. As a little boy, Jesus never had to tell a lie to his dad about where he was or wasn't. 
He never cheated in school. And as he grew up in maturity as a grown man, he kept the commandments perfectly. His record was spotless. You may remember his enemies tried to throw mud in his direction and have sin stick to him. And he says, which, is of, you, which of you has accused me of sin? And no one said a word because they couldn't accuse him of any sin. Remember when he was brought before Pilate, a hostile judge, and Pontius Pilate, they declared in him, I find no fault in this man. I find no fault in Jesus. Perfect integrity. He can also be trusted because he had a brilliant intellect. There was never anyone on the face of the earth in human flesh that had the smarts of Jesus. His intellectual brilliance could not be matched. The Jewish scholars came together and they tried to hold Jesus to to account. Even at the age of 12, Jesus was mesmerizing those who he came in contact with. You may remember where the temple police came to arrest Jesus and Jesus was teaching and the temple police, when they came to arrest him, they were so caught up in his teaching that they totally forgot their mission. And they went back to their leader and they said, sorry guy, uh, we couldn't arrest Jesus. We were just caught up in his teachings. It was so mesmerizing to us. And 2,000 years later, 2,000 years later, Jesus' teachings and his person is still intriguing to us. We're still stimulated and challenged by his behavior and his words and his practical ways and what he put into place, the laws of God. Let me tell you why Jesus merits your trust. He merits your trust because of his miraculous power. If you look at John chapter 14 and verse 11, it says, Believe in me, Jesus says. Believe in me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. He says, but if you can't do that, at least believe in me on the evidence of the miracles that I've presented to you. Only Jesus. Only Jesus has made the diseased well, the deaf hear, the demons flee, and the dead rise from the grave. Only Jesus has been able to do that with the miraculous power because he's God. Remember one of the politicians of Jesus' day had quickly admitted to him, Jesus, we know that you're from God because only someone from God can do the miraculous things that you do. Jesus is worthy of your trust because of his sacrificial, his sacrificial death. Remember the religious leaders had plotted against Jesus to try to kill him. And there were some plots that didn't take shape because Jesus knew in advance what was taking place and he wasn't time for him to die yet. But Jesus was fully aware of the plot that was going to lead him to the cross and Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, he made his way to Jerusalem so that the plot could be unfolded and so that he could go and die on the cross. Jesus, friends, permitted himself to die. He's not some kind of like victim that is a, a victim of injustice Jesus permitted this death. In John 10, verse 18, he says, No one takes my life from me. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to, to take it up again. Meaning, I have the authority to say when I die, and I have the authority to say when I rise back alive from that death. He was a deliberate substitute for our sin. The Scriptures teach us that God laid on Jesus the iniquities, the sins of us all. Jesus became our substitute on the cross. Let's just say for a moment that you're months behind on your payments for your house. And you get a call from the banker 
and you know that that banker has asked you to come in and you're going to talk about maybe foreclosing on the house and you sit before your banker, you're trembling and you have an anticipation that you're going to be evicted, you're helpless because you might be homeless and the banker says to you, I've got great news for you. And you kind of perk up. You have a very generous relative that heard about your plot. He sent us a huge check and he paid off your house. Here's the deed to your home and we've even put thousands into your account. Now, if you ran through a scenario like that, you would be overjoyed. You'd be hugging the banker, you'd be kissing the receptionist, and you'd walk away and you'd try to find out who that relative was, and you'd be thanking them every day of your life because you've been bailed out. And now here comes Jesus. Here comes Jesus, and his sacrificial death, his sacrificial death had become that payment so that we wouldn't have to give up our home in heaven because your goodness is not going to get you a room in heaven. Only Christ's forgiveness is going to do that. Let me tell you why else Jesus is trustworthy. Because he predicted his resurrection. This is important. It's probably the most important part of who Jesus is. Not only did he die like some other great prophets, he rose again just like he predicted he was going to rise again. I'm not going to be crucified and then just die, Jesus said. I'm going to be crucified and then he gave a number. On the third day, I'm going to rise from the dead. You know, no one believed it. The disciples, they didn't understand it. But he did exactly what he said he was going to do. And the way I kind of see it is like this. Any man that said he's going to die and conquer the grave, he's able to handle the troubles that are in my life. Jesus is worthy also of your trust because of his present position. Jesus just didn't die and resurrect and then just die again like Lazarus. Jesus died, was resurrected, and in the first chapter of Acts, he ascends up to heaven to his rightful position at the right hand of the Father, which is a placement of authority and a placement of charge and a placement of position. Romans chapter 8, verse 34, the Apostle Paul says it like this. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, Here's the position. Is at the right hand of God and is, listen to this, interceding for us. Isn't that wonderful, his position? That if you're a brother of Christ, if you're a child of God, Jesus Christ is interceding with the judge of this universe. Now, if you were being convicted of something, wouldn't you want to be close to the judge or know someone who could speak something good about you in the judge's ear? And Jesus says, that's me. And I'm listening to your intercessory prayer and I'm telling that on behalf of you to God and I'm telling God exactly what you need, exactly what you want and I'm telling Him exactly who you are, that you have been forgiven by my blood and that you have accepted me. Don't you want someone like that advocating for you? Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father and He's whispering in His ear as the accuser tries to whisper in God's ear and Jesus is saying, no, Matt is mine. Matt has been forgiven. Jesus is trustworthy because of his present position. Don't let your hearts be troubled, Jesus says. You believe in God. You also believe in me. And then he says in verse 2 of John 14, My father's house has many rooms. Some of you know this through the King James Version of my father's house has many mansions. 
The word actually isn't rooms or mansions. I just discovered this this morning. It's, it's a mixture of the two. It really means that in my Father's house are many families. We're going to talk about that in a couple weeks. Important. There are many families, and we're going to become the family of God. These families, my family, your families, those families that are in heaven, we're all going to become a bigger family, the family of God. So really this doesn't mean typically rooms. It certainly doesn't mean, and I'm sorry for the misunderstanding that you might have been preached to, it certainly doesn't mean mansions. Rats. In my Father's house are many rooms. I like that he says that there's rooms because I think that there might be personal rooms that we have with our name on it that Jesus has prepared for us in advance, a place in heaven, so to speak, that's been reserved for us. There's going to be a lot of, I think, interesting people in heaven. If you get into the book of Revelation, chapter 7, here's what it says. After this I looked, this is John, he says, after this I looked and there before me was this, this great multitude. This great multitude that no one could count. So this huge mass of people, and it's just like so, too many people for John to hunt and peck. How many people? From every nation, every tribe, every people, every language. So your questions about race, or your questions about nationality, or gender, they're, they're answered right there. Who's going to be in heaven? Standing before the throne, and in front of the Lamb. Now there's going to be some interesting characters in heaven. So many people that John couldn't even count them. A great multitude of people. I think there's going to be so many people. We're going to be captivated by those that are there. There's going to be a lot of people to meet, a lot of people to befriend, a lot of people to be captivated by. In my Father's house. What a great way to say it, right? My Father's house. Isn't that a great way? A terminology for Jesus to explain heaven. Heaven's explained in so many different ways. It's explained as the kingdom of God, a marriage supper, a wedding feast. And Jesus says it's my Father's house. That's a good term. Because if you're from a household that had its act together and everything went well for you, dad's house is a great place to be. If someone were to say to you today, we're going to dad's house after services, that might conjure all sorts of great feelings for you, of security, of love, of food, of acceptance, of encouragement. You say, let's go to dad's house, it's great. But if you're from a dysfunctional family, you may not understand what it means to be in the Father's house because you weren't shown those things. And so let me just tell you this. It's all those things to the nth degree and you can just count on those things being there. Those great values that make a house a home. Jesus says, my Father's house is going to be a home to you. A home like you've never had before. A home of perfection. In my Father's house are many rooms. I think there's going to be a recreational room. At least I hope there's a recreational room. All sorts of things to do. You can sign up for tours and activities and you can go on trips if you'd like. I think, I hope at least that there's an instant replay room. Of all the things maybe of history that you get to kind of watch and see exactly how they happened, not how they've been interpreted through maybe a historian or two. Like you can see firsthand how Moses and the people walked through the sea. You can see firsthand how David courageously went up against the giant. Did Jonah really get swallowed up on that well and spit out in Nineveh? What was the Gettysburg Address like? I think there's got to be a room like that. There's got to be a room where we can look back upon our own life, kind of in review and hit rewind and see all the ways in which God has held our hand or lifted us up or carried us to strengthen us when we were weak in our most lowest of moments, and we can say, God, I had no idea 
you carried me in that time. Heaven's for sure got to have a classroom. I know that we say it like this, that as soon as we arrive, we're instantaneously filled with knowledge, but that's not what the wording's getting at. It's getting that we are learning continually. That's a wonderful place to be, learning continually, understanding new things. You have all of eternity to figure it out. And there's going to be room probably filled with teachers and people who can help us along the journey and show us how to do new things and to open and expand our minds a little bit. I hope there's a question and answer room, don't you? I got some pretty deep questions. I got some serious questions like, why do infants have to die? I have other questions like, did the Colorado River really just carve out the Grand Canyon? Was that the result of a flood or was that the river itself? I got questions that are like this, like when storms come and hit the coast, like Hurricane Katrina, was that God's judgment or was that just a part of the weather phenomena of our world? I want to figure out what foreknowledge is in compared to predestination. Haven't been able to figure that one out yet. Don't come to me after service and say, you got it figured out because I know you don't. But I know what Ephesians 2.7 says. In the coming ages, he might show us the incomparable riches of his grace. And that word showing is this progressive, continual act of learning. Friends, heaven's not going to be a dull place. Many rooms with all sorts of things to do. You're not going to be bored. You're not going to just be strumming a harp. There are many rooms that are going to rivet your attention. And Jesus says, don't let your heart be troubled. You have the hope of heaven. Your present distress is not the end any more than the crucifixion of Jesus was his end. There is more to come. And you can believe the words of Jesus when he says, I will come again and I'll receive you to myself. Now there's two ways to look at this. There are those that are dead. He's coming again and he's going to redeem those that have been dead and going to catch up his church. And there are those that are left here on earth, and he's going to redeem us and take us up into heaven, and he's coming again for us. This is obviously something about his return, but this is also also some, some help for those that are there in the moment. Jesus is going to the cross in just a few days, and he's telling his disciples, listen, guys, I'm going to come again. I'm going to come, and I'm going to receive you, and certainly he did. I mean, three days after his death, he returns, and he shows him the nail prints hands and he says, you can trust me. I did what I said I was going to do. Friends, Jesus made, made them and us a promise and we can definitely depend on that promise. Jesus says, and if I go, I'm gonna prepare a place for you. I'll come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Instead of trouble, put trust in there. Trust in Jesus. Put your hope in heaven Be confident you're going there. Jesus says, I know the place where I'm going. And Thomas says, Jesus, how do we know where you're going? And how do we get there? Jesus says, oh, come on, Thomas. I am the way. Follow me, Thomas. I am the truth. Pattern your life after me, Thomas. I am the life. Thomas, I'll give you life beyond the grave. No one comes to the Father, Thomas, except through me. Let me give you the most important biblical fact about heaven that there is. That is, while there might be countless people there, the majority will not be there. 85% say that they are going to heaven in the United States. 
Yet more than half of those 85% that were surveyed say they're going to be there because they're good people. And that's not what Jesus says to Thomas. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, not through your goodness. And I think although there's going to be a great number of people in heaven, there are going to be people that just don't make it to heaven because they just don't choose to follow after Jesus. Remember Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount? He says, enter through the narrow gate. Jesus is the gate, the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many will enter through that. But small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life and only a few will find it. Jesus is the narrow gate. His teaching is the narrow path. It's about following and obeying Jesus Christ. So it's very important that we know how to get to heaven by following Jesus and obeying His instructions. I am the way to heaven, Jesus says. Follow after me, Thomas. You know, no other religious leader can make the claim that they know the way to heaven. If you study Islam and you look at Muhammad, he doesn't say, I know the way to heaven. If you look at uh, a Buddhism and you look at Buddha, he never said, I know the way to heaven, follow me. If you look at Moses, who was this great Jewish leader who loved God, he never says, I know the way to heaven, you follow me. I'll get you there. No, he always pointed back to God and said, God will get you there following the commandments. We'll get you there sacrificing to, Christ, to God. We'll get you there. So here's my big question to you. Do you know how to get to heaven? Because that's what Jesus finally concludes with Thomas. Thomas, don't you know how to get there? There's a place that has many rooms. I've got a name on the door for you, and it's reserved for you. Do you know how to get there? Thomas is saying, I, I'm not sure. Jesus says, you follow me, you obey me, I'll lead you right to it, but you follow after me. How do you get to heaven? Someone has said it's as simple as A, B, C, and D. First, you admit. You admit that you've sinned and that you've separated yourself from God. Remember, the Bible says that all have sinned, fallen short of His glory. Every single one of us in this room has sinned. We've fallen short of the mark. We haven't hit the bullseye, even though you've shot for it and you're a pretty good person. You might be the best person in the world. You've still missed the mark. You haven't hit the red. And your chance of making it to heaven is about as good of chance as you swimming from California to Hawaii and surviving that journey. Not going to happen. We've all fallen short of God's glory and we are in trouble and i think instead of smugly comparing yourself to a neighbor or to a co-worker who you're better than we ought to start comparing ourselves to the law just the law for a minute just take the ten commandments for a second now i think i've broken every commandment and if you look through those ten commandments i'd bet to say you've broken the majority of them if not all of them yourself and the apostle paul says it's a good thing to look through the law because that has us realize that we're not perfect people Romans chapter 3, verse 20 says, No one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. You try observing the law, you're going to find out you've fallen short, short you're a lawbreaker. Rather, than, rather though the law will become, conscious, will become conscious of sin. So if we just throw ourselves under the Ten Commandments for a moment, we're going to realize, oh, we don't stack up to God's high and lofty standards. We certainly don't stack up to the high and lofty standards that Jesus puts into place in the New Testament. And so we admit, humbly, Jesus, I'm a sinner, and I need your grace. I'm not deserving of heaven, 
I need your forgiveness. Secondly, we believe in Jesus Christ as our Savior. In John chapter 3, verse 16, so many of you know it, it says, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. But to believe is more than just to consciously uh, have a mental agreement that Jesus is God's Son. I think there's a lot of people that say, yeah, Jesus is God's Son. But what do they do with that belief? Belief is putting something into motion. It's faith saying that act on the cross, that resurrection that happened 2,000 years ago, I trust in that. I have faith that Jesus is who He says He was and nothing else is going to save me from my sin but that act of Jesus becoming a substitute of sin on the cross for me. And that's my only saving grace. Not how good I am, not how good my parents were, not how well I've done in life, No, the Bible says it's by grace you've been saved, not of works, so no man can boast. So admit you're a sinner and believe in Jesus as Savior. Here's the third part. Confess that Jesus is the Lord of your life. Romans chapter 10, verse 9 says, If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and then believe in your heart. So there's things that are going on here. You're confessing Jesus is Lord. You're believing in your heart. That's faith. God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Friends, look at it like this for a moment. Jesus died a very public death. On the busiest day of the year, he was taken out to the busiest street and road in Jerusalem, and he was hung up on a cross for all to see. So all those people would stop their busyness and turn to insult Jesus. And when he asks you to follow him, he says, I want you to do it in a public, confessing way. This is not a confession of your sins. This is a confession that Jesus is Lord. Some of you have got this messed up a little bit. And you're so afraid to confess Christ because you think it's a confession that you're wrong when it's a confession that what Jesus did was right and has made you righteous. That's why in Scripture it's called the good confession. Some of you who are married, you stood up On the platform, a preacher had asked you to take vows and you committed those vows and you were very nervous probably in doing so, but you you loved and cherished and you wanted to make a commitment to your spouse until death separates you. And even though your, your body was tense in doing it, you made that confession. And when you become a Christian, God asks that you pledge your allegiance to him publicly. Whoever acknowledges me before men, Jesus said, I will acknowledge him before my heavenly Father. Lastly, demonstrate your allegiance to Christ by repenting of your sin and being baptized into Jesus Christ. Acts chapter three, verse uh, Acts chapter two, verse thirty-eight rather says, "Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit." You know what repentance means? Repentance means to change directions. It's an about face from where you were headed to say, I no longer am heading in that direction of my mischievousness or my conduct, which wasn't honoring of God. I'm going to run and now I'm going to follow after Christ. I'm not going to live for my selfish pleasures anymore. I'm going to live under God's will. Repentance doesn't mean that you're going to live a perfect life from there on out. Repentance means that you're going to desire or do your best to follow after Jesus Christ. Friends, there's going to be some stumbles along the journey as you pursue Jesus and follow Him. 
But what repentance does mean is you're saying, I'm not going to follow the crowd. I'm going to start following Jesus Christ. He's my goal. Baptism. Baptism becomes this great benchmark, the dividing line between your old life and your new life, a life of receiving Jesus Christ and being identified with Him. There's something special and spiritual going on in the act of baptism. It's not just the pledge of a conscience. It's not just the washing of of your body through water. There's something spiritual going on there where it unites us with Jesus, the text says in Romans 6. Look with me in Romans 6, uh, verses 3 and through 5. Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ were baptized into His death? We're sharing something with Jesus when we're baptized. We were therefore buried with Him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we may have new life. With baptism comes what, Paul says? Baptism comes new life. For we have been united with Him in a death like His. Do you catch what's going on? This is not just some ceremony that's taking place here. It's, it's a benchmark. It says, I was an old life, I want a new life, and I identify with Christ now. I was sharing in a death like His, and we will certainly also be united with Him in a resurrection like His. Jeff Walling, he's a Church of Christ minister. He tells about an old preacher that he knew growing up. His name was Brother Johnson, and Brother Johnson believed that in baptism you should resemble a true death and a, and a true burial. And when people were baptized by Brother Johnson, they was quite an experience. Instead of just doing like what most typical churches do, having the candidate stand there and say, do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? And they say yes or no to that. Then you say, I now, pronounce, or I now, I now baptize you in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then they bury them in the water. Brother Johnson would bury them in the water and then say, I baptize you now in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And according to Acts chapter 2, verse 38, it says that you're going to have your sins forgiven and you're going to arise from these waters with new life and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, all the crowd was on their seat. They want to know, is that guy going to get back up out of the water again? And that guy who's underneath the water, he's finally opened his eyes and there was splash in the water and finally... Brother Johnson would lift him back up and there's this great gasp of air from that person. He wanted them to know, there's life in you. The death is out of you. You can rise from the grave. Now, we don't do that in this church. But baptism is a symbol of death. The old life is gone. The new life has come. We've united ourselves with Jesus. We're saying, he's my target. I'm going to follow him. He's the way, the truth, the life. I'm going to follow after Jesus the best way I know how. Romans 8, verse 11 reads, And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who lives in you. So friends, don't let your hearts be troubled. Replace trouble with trust in God and trust in Jesus. Focus your attention on a home that God has prepared for us, a home with many rooms where our Heavenly Father resides. And be confident through what Christ has done on the cross that you have a citizenship in heaven.